The following is presented by the Center for Political Innovation, CPI, Building American Socialism for the 21st Century. To learn more, visit cpiusa.org. Hey, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome. So glad you're with us here tonight. Uh, it's going to be a great conversation. Uh, we're going to have a special guest uh, for the opening section. So hit, hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the notifications bell. Uh, it's going to be a great conversation tonight. Uh, glad to have you all here with us. Um, should be good. So I guess with no further ado, we will jump right into it. ...of the American century. I say that the century on which we are entering can be and must be the century of the common man. A radical redistribution of economic power. I mean, we know that racism is just, just a byproduct of capitalism. Everything we always is everything we put back in the hands of the people. We need a government that will make sure Americans are taken care of and organize the economy to serve the people, not the profits of a wealthy few. We now have the techniques and the resources to get rid of poverty. We got to start getting out there with the people. Get out of the movement and get to the masses. We need a government of action. All right. Uh, so the way this show works generally, for those of you who may not be familiar, uh, is we give our opening remarks. We have the opening section. Then after that, we do the roll call where we call people out as their names and locations. And then for the rest of the night, I answer super chat questions. So uh, we're going to do our opening bit uh, with with uh, our special guest. And while that's going on, uh, our great volunteer, Don D from NYC, will be writing down people's super chat questions. So if you have something you want me to talk about in the second half of the show, by all means, send us a super chat. That's how it works. Uh, just, just super chat that to us. So Don D will be writing it down. And then we'll do the roll call uh, when the opening section's over, and then I will answer your super chats. So keep that in mind. Uh, we'll be taking down super chats throughout the first half. Now, tonight we have a very, very special guest. Um, uh, his name is David Fox, and David Fox is a leader of Australians for a New Democracy, which is a think tank that just opened up in Australia. And he's also a, a longtime labor organizer uh, with a lot of experience in the labor movement in Australia. Tonight, he's going to come on and talk about the elections that just happened in Australia, uh, their implications domestically and internationally, um, and what we can learn from it. So we're going to bring him on right now. Welcome, David. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Yourself? Oh, I'm, I'm doing great. I'm here in my lovely Brooklyn apartment with plenty of unnamed water beverage to drink uh, as we continue speaking. Uh, how are and things? The unnamed diet beverage. Wow, very, very good. Very, very good. Uh, how are things down under? Oh, very busy, very busy. We just, as you mentioned in the introduction, we have a federal election uh, polling. We've had pre-poll, but polling days tomorrow. Uh, it's looking very close at the moment. And so really, it, we can't predict who's going to win. Some sources saying Labor will win. Others saying Morrison may get in with the help of independents. We don't know yet. All right. Now, um, I guess, you know, break it down for us a little bit. Uh, in the United States, we have the Democratic Party, which is considered to be, you know, liberal or left wing. Uh, we have the, you know, the, the Republicans, which are considered to be conservative. In Australia, your more left wing or nominally liberal party is called the Labor Party. Um, and that comes out of the, the 
you know, the heritage of the labor movement and such, right? I mean, can you, can you give yes. us information about that? So who are the major players? Right. Well, the major players, obviously, the Australian Labor Party, and then you have what we call the Liberal National Coalition, uh, Liberal and National Parties form coalition. Uh, the but it's not to be confused what liberalism means to you guys in the US. They are the more conservative side of politics. Uh, the Labor Party, yes, you're right, that was actually, it came out of the Labor struggles of the 1890s uh, prior to Federation, and it was founded by the unions uh, initially. Mm. All right, and um, so I guess at this point, so that those are the two major major players. There are probably a lot of smaller parties, but yeah. but in terms of these are the two that have the potential to form a government. Is is these yes. two? Uh, yes. All right. Now, uh, what what are the issues that are being raised? What are people uh, debating uh, as the elections go forward? Well, a big one is cost of living measures as well. There's obviously money being thrown. Um, at, at people as well. Obviously, just going back track a few weeks ago, we had the federal budget. Uh, the Morrison government um, decided to grant uh, people low incomes and pensioners with an extra two hundred and fifty dollars um, to do what exactly? They don't try and stimulate some economic growth, but it obviously hasn't worked as well. Um, and Australia is no is no different from every other country in the world. We are facing an economic crisis. Uh, cost mm. of living has gone right through the roof. It's still continuing to rise. There's obviously the the Labor Party itself is promising. It's actually agreeing to a five percent per annum increase in the, in the minimum wage. Uh, and obviously, the coalition wants to leave it leave it up to the market forces and 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 what we call the Fair Work Commission to determine that outcome. So that's a big issue. Uh, as, as I said, we've seen groceries uh, gone through the roof. We've seen fuel uh, continuing to rise. We've actually, uh, housing is a huge issue here in Australia as well. It's just out of reach for anyone now. If you even want to put, uh, if you want to, even trying to save a deposit to put on a home is becoming uh, further out of reach for a lot of people, but even rental now as well. Um, people are actually competing if uh, to save up for a deposit on a rental. All right. Now, um, from what we've been told, you know, here in the United States, your lockdowns in Australia were a lot harsher than the lockdowns mm. here in the United States. Is that an issue in the upcoming elections? Oh, to a certain degree. I think uh, some people uh, did suffer, obviously, economically from there as well. Uh, and obviously, again, uh, also against the mandate as well, like uh, I'm not too sure within the US, but certainly here in Australia, most governments, state governments, uh, mandated uh, the vaccine, and basically some people live for years to get it, lost their jobs through that as well. So it's obviously an ongoing issue. There is a lot of those uh, people who are involved in the anti-mandate, anti-vax, anti-lockdown um, protests are usually campaigning for the smaller parties at the moment. I see. Okay, so neither party is associated with anti-lockdown stuff. No, not the major parties, no. Okay. Now, also, obviously, you know, any, any election that's going to happen in a major country at this point is going to be tainted by the international situation and yes, by yes. Russia and especially by China, which is pretty close yeah. to Australia. Uh, how do these parties, how do they stand when it comes to these, these issues? Well, they're, they're very, very similar. They, they follow a very similar policy on their stance with China. Uh, Taiwan's usually the hot hot topic at the moment, so is the Solomon Islands as well. I think they're trying to outdo each other. Who's going to be the better servant to um, US foreign policy, I think, at the same time, uh, instead of 
having steering our own course. And just for all the viewers out there, our foreign policy really is just tied up with US foreign policy and we tend to use as a, as a launching pad for the pivot into Asia as well. Um, and I think the way our current federal government's been behaving, especially in the course of the last few years, uh, the anti-China sentiment certainly has increased tenfold here in Australia as well. And we, unfortunately, we had our federal defence minister, Peter Dutton, uh, actually on our Anzac Day. For those of you wondering what Anzac Day is, it's, uh, it's a yearly event to, um, to remember those who died in conflict, um, in war. And he, he came out and publicly announced that we must uh, be prepared for war in order to have peace on that day. So it is a concern, it is a big concern for us here in Australia as well. Mm -hmm. Well, right. And there's been, you know, this scandal about the killing of civilians in Afghanistan, right? I know that yes. that has certainly been a big issue. I mean, can you talk mm -hmm. about, is that, is that a factor in the elections, would you say? No, not a big factor. So, I mean, to us, it would be naturally an issue. Uh, mm -hmm. It's still on the, it's still in at the moment being heard and obviously investigated further. It, it, it's certainly not off the cards, but it's not an actual top election item at the moment. Mm -hmm. And what about the situation with the Solomon Islands? Is that mm. is that being discussed? Certainly is at times. It certainly is raised still. Um, the, the the news here, the media here. I mean, you can't you can't make this up. They think China's going to establish military bases in the Solomon Islands, which is not the case at all. They're not. Uh, China's got that policy. They're not going to do that. But obviously, they've got everyone worked up. All oh, China's going to use that as a, a military base. You know, they're going to do all sorts of things there. You know, um, and missiles. Oh, it's as I said, you cannot make this stuff. If you had, well, look at our mainstream media; it's just absolutely the pits of times. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. they're they're whipping up fear of China, and is and yes. both both candidates are just are are you know both of the major parties are are on board with this. You're telling me, yeah, yeah. There's not really a difference when it comes mm -hmm. to that. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and then I guess that that leads me to ask also, I understand that RT, uh, the TV network that I work for, uh, used to work at RT America. There is no RT yeah. America anymore, but I still work with International. I understand it's illegal in Australia. Is, is that correct? Yeah. yeah, it's very hard to access. I'm able to access it again um, mm -hmm. through other apps, applications. I think some people change their VPNs as well to be able to wow. access it. Yeah. Um, again, so we're able to uh, receive oh. the main source. But for a while there, there was just an internet blackout on Sputnik um, RT. And I think there's another one, TAS, as well. So it's not just that you can't watch it on television. You're no. telling me it's actually blocked on the internet. You have to get a VPN in order to watch it. Yeah, it was like that for a while. I'm, ha I'm actually... I did wow. change a few apps, but well, we managed to get access to them. Again, I think the internet... I use... Um, Microsoft Search, so I'm happy to get that through. Funny enough, at the moment, get uh, wow. access to RT. So it's not simply not simply that you can't watch it on your TV. It's that they're they're preventing you from getting online and even visiting the website. Yeah. Wow. And, yeah. Yeah. They, they try everything, and especially during the outbreak of uh, back in February, it, it, they had a amount of people. You can get out. You have access. The next thing is shuts down. And then you try and reboot later on and manage to get some access again. So we're all no different uh, compared to what Europe and North America as well, trying to put media blackouts on the, on the other side of the story. That's wild. That's mm -hmm. wild. Now, um, you know, as somebody from Australians for a New Democracy, as a, a labor organizer yourself, I mean, uh, where do the interests of the working families of Australia lie in this upcoming vote? Well, it's going to be interesting because... 
Traditionally in the past, say, we go back 30, 40 years, most working people would have supported Labor. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a lot's changed. Demographics have changed over the years. A lot, lot of it due to the deindustrialisation uh, in Australia as well. Australia once had a, a very big manufacturing base, so Australia, so the Labor Party had that had that uh, comfortable background. But now it's really got a camp, uh, campaign differently. A lot of old seats they traditionally uh, held was like in the inner cities of Sydney, where um, and Melbourne, for example, were where a lot of working class people lived and worked. Um, they're no longer there. That's all been gentrified over the years. So you can see the changing demographics uh, overall. But even too, um, with the Labor Party, it, and including the coalition, um, they really have to campaign hard in a lot of seats now because even a lot of coalition seats are under threat uh, as well, either from the key uh, candidates or even the Labor Party itself. So it's... It, it's well, I meant independent, sorry, and, and the Labor Party. And uh, so, you know, nothing can be taken granted anymore. Now, traditionally in Australia, just well, for those of you who are interested how we vote, we've got a preferential voting system very similar to the British system. That's what we adopted. Uh, on the lower house, you've got candidates that uh, represent a seat and or the House of Representatives, and in the Senate, or the upper house, otherwise known, that's the Senate, and that, that, that they represent the states. Uh, mm. And territories of Australia, so that's that's where that happens. So they'll they'll get a statewide or territory wide vote, and so that's where that's where that happens. And the preferential system, I mean, is we've got uh, say a list of candidates. So you can have, and there'll be on on there. You can vote one, and then you go two, three, four. You know, party A, party. Mm. You know what I mean? Right down. Depends on how many. So if you've got seven there, it doesn't have to be one, two, three, four down the. List it can be any of your preference, and that's how they, uh, and that's how they calculate the vote. But usually, most of the preferences will go to either major party. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. so I guess that makes it a little bit easier for mm-hmm. parties beyond the major parties to mm-hmm. get support, right? When people don't feel like they have to vote, you know, for one of the major parties, or they're throwing their vote away, um, yeah. right? You know, um, so I guess beyond the two major parties, are there any other parties that are gaining any ground? Would you say? Well. That's going to be interesting because at the last course, the events of the last two years, we've had the rise of we've got uh, the United Australia Party, which is run pretty much by billionaire Clive Palmer. He's a mining magnate. Um, he's he's thrown a lot of money in that. He's he's basically his interests are mining interests. He obviously he's sort of um, it's about easy. Uh, obviously, he wants to have his coal mines and uh, and. Coal generated electricity, etc., up and running, and he wants certainly no hurdles put in front of that. We have uh, One Nation, which is traditionally a more um, right wing than and then Liberal National Coalition, founded by Pauline Hanson. Um, they had some very very ultra conservative views, especially on immigration and and, and race as well. And then you've got various other independents and various other parties, etc., trying to run. Usually, they were formed. A lot of these other parties were formed in the last two years, coming out of the anti vaccine, anti mandate. I think it's because people were economically were uh, isolated and suffering. Um, traditionally, you know, they were middle class. Some. Uh, self-employed uh, and they found themselves look nowhere to go so they've gone together and, and formed these parties mm. okay and there's no uh socialist groups that are gaining any ground uh, no trotskyites or or well yeah we, we, we do it i mean we've got the australian citizens party which is a larouche party it's okay. the equivalent of the u.s but they've got some very interesting policies one especially on banking they've they're really good they know their stuff about banking and finance 
and obviously very big genera- uh, big big project um, uh, ambitions as well, um, such as greening the inland and uh, building these massive big high speed rail projects and other things. So they're, they're quite visionary in some areas. They actually, I had watched a couple of their films, and they represent that old labour of the forties and fifties. You know, the, uh, of that of that period. Uh, and they take that up. The other ones are the Victorian so- socialists, which are uh, pretty much the Trotskyised. Uh, they were the f- forming with uh, Socialist Alternative and many others as well, uh, and Socialist Alliance uh, as well. That, and then you have the Greens as well, the Australian Greens, which they do have some. I think they've got about eight, nine uh, senators at the moment, and they've usually managed to get some vote, and they uh, to, to have some to have representation in the Senate, and they also currently hold the federal seat of Melbourne at the moment. Yeah. Now, uh, Neil Frazier is asking me, uh, he's asking me to ask you, can you ask David this, please? If I am not mistaken, Australia used to have significantly powerful trade unions. To what extent have they been gutted? And does that legacy of power still resonate? And can it be rebuilt? Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Look, that, that's a long history over the course of the last 40 years. Uh, I, I can, if you want to know other time, I can give you a whole segment of that. But from the late 60s onwards, um, Unions in Australia really grew. Now the number can be debated, but we got up to 80 percent of the workforce. We're the world leader, we're pretty much the jewel and the crown of the trade union movement uh, internationally. Uh, we gained a lot of measures, shorter work week. Um, my predecessor union, the Amalgamated Metal Workers, was in the heart of the shorter work week, thirty-eight hour week, uh, having seventeen and a half percent annual leave loading with four weeks annual leave. You know, these are other things work, and also the awards strengthening that um but when pretty much when neoliberal policies were adopted by both major parties the labor party first in the early 1980s we had a thing called the accord which was actually instead of us going for a big pay rise we're giving concessions such as superannuation uh medicare and a few other things but really what happened in the meantime was the stripping away of union power by by the direct direct assault by employer groups because the employer groups were starting to take their hands. We're not going to abide by industrial law anymore. They started to get super militant. I uh, made some major disputes such as the Road River dispute, Dollar Suites dispute, uh, plumbers um, dispute, the Mudgeonberry um, Meatworks dispute where all unions got sued and sued um, significantly and had to pay large substantial fines. And it was the start of the de- de-unionisation, uh, which actually flowed, in, flowed along the same line as the de-industrialisation of Australia as well. And by, by, by now, you know, by the 1990s, uh, unions have um, shrunk, shrunk in quite, quite significantly. And look, just to be perfectly honest, I mean, the industries too, we used to see all this equipment Factory shut down. Next thing you know, trucks are coming in, moving all this equipment, and then sent overseas. Um, so that that's neoliberal policies, and we've we've seen that in the gutting of our industries. Uh, manufacturing used to be the backbone of the union movement here for a long time. We did have a large, substantial uh, amount of the workforce in, in manufacturing in the nineteen sixties. Was probably mid nineteen sixties was its peak, about forty to forty five percent. Of workforce was involved in manufacturing. That's why Australia had that such a really great, um, strong domestic domestic economy. Because to have a strong domestic economy, you need to have a, a very strong manufacturing base. Uh, one can't exist without the other, even under capitalist terms. And so right through, and 
obviously gradually started to climb over the years. And yeah, so where we're in the situation now, we the unions have grown here, interesting enough, over, over the course of the last couple of years. I think people threatened to lose their jobs and a lot of economic insecurity. It, it's going to take some time to turn all that around. Um, it's not going to just be an overnight. It has to be built certain strategies. It's not just easy. You can just walk in a factory, hey, everyone, join up. You want to buy, mm-hmm. But we, we do need to have that. Um, assistance, mind you, too. We've got a lot of very anti-union, anti-worker laws here in Australia, just like in the US, just like Britain. Um, unions itself, workers and unions can't just go automatically go out and strike. The way the ruling class is, man, is the best way to do it. Instead of ta- attacking with military and police uh, and goons and and thugs and everyone else, uh, the best way is to cripple you financially and, and have you leading up to paying substantially large fines, $20,000, $30,000 an hour. If you happen to be you're struggling try, and paying off a home, uh, you, you know, you're borrowed heavily from a bank plus your deposit, you're paying off a home that could cost maybe a half a million dollars, 750000 Australia, still quite huge for us. You could just imagine what a 30000 fine would be crippling up to, up to a maximum and workers have been fined. And also the union body as well um, to be fined um, wow. crippling. So once you cripple a union financially, it can, it'll find it very self um, and workers, they find it very hard to put on. So you can see this is reluctance to do things, and which is understand, understandable. I think uh, workers, you know, two or three paychecks from losing their jobs or um, poverty and that. So last thing they want to do is be facing that in the federal court. So we have a lot of those restrictions in place. And they, they came in, but these didn't just happen overnight, just over with one conservative government. This was a gradual part of uh, legislation from banning secondary boycotts back in the late 70s, right through to actually start attacking unions um, front on, deregistering uh, other militant unions, such as the Builders Labourers Federation in the mid-1980s, and they were a very powerful union in the building industry, a very good union too. Um, and yeah, obviously deliberate amount, you know, trying to pour some amalgamations on people. So I think the generation that's uh, us in the, in the union movement now, we know that, where we've got a lot, we have a lot of work to do. Um, in the meantime, because unions are still bodies of workers, and I know they're not perfect by all means, um, and but I mean, and they might not be re- they're not revolutionary, sure, but I mean, that's where we have workers consistent, and we do need to actually um, turn those things around. Uh, like I've stressed in a lot of my uh, some of my talks, it's vitally important that those of us who are Marxists, Leninists, evolved in the unions in one way or the other, one way trying to turn unions back into fighting organs of the working class because there's no other organs of the working class here. Uh, I don't know about anywhere else overseas, but we don't have workers' councils. We don't have, you know, uh, community assemblies, etc. But we do have unions. We still have trades hall. I'm just in my office here at trades hall at the moment. Um, we still have those, and they still get regularly used. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting. You know, one theme on these lives and that we talk a lot about with the Center for Political Innovation is this this entity we call the synthetic left. And would mm-hmm. you... Would you say that this that you know synthetic leftism has weakened the labor movement in Australia as well as the Labor Party? Yeah, yes, down to a, it was a, yeah, quite to a degree. Did, did differently from you guys in the US, uh, mm. and there was a lot of that uh, over over a period of time. It just didn't happen overnight. There was the way they did it here in Australia was basically infiltrated the old Communist Party many years ago, uh, mm. basically. Uh, what they called the new left ideology uh, that came out, which basically forced the uh, Communist Party split. Just for those, those a bit of history, 
the first split in the Communist Party was over the Sino-Soviet dispute in the early 60s. Sure. Um, mm -hmm. But in 1964, the Communist Party Australia Marxist-Leninist was formed uh, by both expelled members of the CPA, those aligned with China, those who were actually um, concerned about where the CPA was heading. The next one was in 1971. There was another further split. So you had the Soviet-aligned Socialist Party of Australia, um, mm. that formed in that year because they saw where the ideology of the CPA was heading at the same time. And during the 70s and 80s, they basically, the CPA just reduced in number um, until mm -hmm. such a time they liquidated in the early 90s. Um, and they, by then they wanted to form what called the New Left Party. And they wanted to actually invite all those people who, who are left of the wing of Labor into it. So they have this New Left Party. But it, it didn't last very long and they wound up going in Labor Party as well. But uh, they, they totally got, uh, totally dismissed any of the classic ideology of Marxist-Leninism as well. And, yes, it had, it had played its role within in the union movement as well. Um, we've been affected by liberalism. We'll use the term liberalism um, to, to, a, to a great degree. Um, yeah, and um, basically, tied, basically got rid of class struggle, what we're mm. talking about which but the way things move forward was through struggle, not through continual endless talks. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So, yeah, sorry. Mm. Oh, no, yeah, no, it's just very interesting. I mean, are there other examples of, of how the synthetic left has, like, changed the conversation and pushed left-wing yeah. circles away from the, the economic class struggle? I mean, is, is Yes, yeah, and look, I won't mention names and groups. Sure, of course, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I could see it when, they, you know, it's very similar to the US. You know, I like how you turn the protest cage um, and it's just really what they've done basically now because of that ideology, they've wound up being on the fringe of the mm. working class. You know, uh, most working class people will just ignore it, not interested. They don't, they're no longer representing working class interests anymore and, and that's just the problem. Um, and I, even too with, with the respected communist parties that's still here, they're not actually they no longer represent working class interest in lead small little groups. Um, mm -hmm. It is a sad state of affairs, and the way the synthetic left um, has applied, especially through academia, uh, more so than uh, it, but it has played its influence here in, in the union movement as well. And I think, look, some unions are waking up to the fact where we do have to get back to class. They're not thinking, well, you know, they're not thinking in a Marxist term, obviously, but they're certainly. Uh, they think we need to get back to talking about struggle and class and working class politics again. And I thought that's good. Man, that's, it's refreshing to hear that. It's going to yeah. take a long time to um, turn that around as well, because especially when a lot of people uh, that are uh, a lot of young um, activists and that they want to get involved in the union movement, they come in and they've got these preconceived ideas a whole lot. And, you know, we, you know, we've got to say something a particular way or you can't say that or, you know, whatever, or you're cancelled. I said, well, guys, knock it off. Right. You know, this is you're dealing with common working ordinary people and if you start that sort of thing, you're not going to grow the union movement at all. But yeah. I, I mean, my experience and being a shop steward on job, for those of you who don't know me, I'm a boilermaker by trade. Okay. Um, that's my background. And, yeah, and, and, I, and I've been a shop steward a lot and I've, I've dealt with those work. You know, people that want workmates and all that, they, they've got different, definitely different views from what I have. Um, some knew, knew my, my politics and that, and they had a bit, of a bit of a joke with me at times and stuff. But when we got to serious stuff, we had some good serious discussions. But if I start cancelling people out 
well, how am I going to effectively represent everybody? Because you've got to represent everyone from even then within the, in the workplace itself, being a shop steward or on, on a much bigger area as an organiser. You know, you're going to have those militant workers, non-militant workers, you're going to have ones that they've got some really conservative views to outright, uh, some of them might have some progressive views. But we've got to rep we're a union, we've got to represent our members um, and re represent their members' interests first. And that's that's vitally important. It, it takes some education. I have to change sometimes my tone of the language and that because I don't want to lose workers either. And, um, well, their interests on it and you, know, you want to keep them in focus. And so I do fix the, this is the, this is the thing we're well, trying to learn for a very long time is take the ideology into the union. Not the other way around, and uh, so and just to get, want to get workers a basic understanding of the system they live under and what's really going on. But obviously, there's a lot of work to do. I'm only I'm only one person, uh, but there's others uh, out there as well trying to do the same thing. Well, let me ask you. Um, you know, I, I've heard a couple of years back. It seemed like Kevin Rudd. Uh, you know, who I guess is a was he's a former prime minister of Australia. He was talking about the Belt and Road Initiative and saying that it was a good thing. Has he hmm. changed his tone since then? Is he no longer doing that? I well, he's been basically talking about a lot about Murdoch. Um, I, he's been in the power of Rupert Murdoch. Um, I don't know if you're well aware, uh, Kevin Rudd, along with former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. Uh, and there's many others to push to have a royal commission into the Murdoch media. Okay, Murdoch media as Controls about seventy percent of our media here in Australia. Wow! Yeah. Wow. Uh, so you got Sky News, Fox, uh, Fox Television. You have the various newspapers such as the Herald Sun, uh, the Australian uh, Daily Telegraph in Sydney, and many more. So he does own a lot of media outlets, uh, and obviously he he he's basically been the mouth voice. No, sorry, the mouth voice for the um, for the. Uh, Liberal National Coalition, more or less. You can see it even on Sky News. They're more in favour of them than be the Labor Party. So obviously um, that's been his big thing. But that's a very interesting point, Nana, because when he was Prime Minister, he was hinting that way that the Belt and Road Initiative was a good thing. Obviously mm -hmm. that upset a few people in Washington and the US consulate here. And, and for those of you who don't know, there was another little quiet coup uh, that, well, a soft coup that happened back in... I think 2009 it was, 2010. No, it would have been about 2010. Um, obviously, at that time, the Kevin Rudd, not just himself but many others in the government, um, proposed a mining tax. That might have been the trigger, but what it was, he was, when he was there talking about the Belt and Road Initiative, that upset Washington a bit, and there were some phone calls made by just some key figures uh, involved in the Labor Party and said, do something about this man. And they go, yes, sir. And they did. And next thing you know, we had Julia Gillard uh, as our Prime Minister after that. And the first thing she did, got on the phone to Barack Obama. And, uh, yeah, she really admired Barack Obama. But everyone goes, oh, you know, great uh, female Prime Minister and that. But really, you know, it, you know, yeah, great. But that's an historical moment in some aspect. But the reality is, at the end of the day, it was basically over. You're getting too close to China, son. You know, it's time to, yeah, it's time to come back. We've got this pivot into Asia. Do as you're told, mm. and mm. that—that's basically what it was. Yeah, Australia, do as you're told. Mm. Mm. All right. Well, let me just ask you, I guess, uh, for my final question, I'll just ask about Australians for a new democracy. And amid yep. this political atmosphere, uh, what do you put forward, and what what are you putting forward? What kind of educational materials are you putting out as a yep. think tank? 
Well, over the course of the last few months, we're obviously aware we've been trying to get this up and running. We're actually inspired by all you guys in the US with the Centre of Political Innovation. Um, and we wanted to actually think we need something like this in Australia as well, putting forward a, a you know, could be ten points, could be five points. We're going to be three points, but very not 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 so dissimilar for what uh, the CPI in the US has for Australia. We need. We are certainly emphasise the uh, uh, the point that we need a government of action that fights for working uh, people because reality is in the day we've had for a long time. Um, even though some parties might say yes, we do. We've given you a few little crumbs, but it's really at the end of the day. It's we need to have a some of the genuine um, part of government. Uh, that will do that. And moment, other other things as well we want to put forward too is like, you know, obviously um, for our agricultural sector, our, you know, high-speed rail, many other things to start. Look, giving giving people a vision, something to organise around again, and I think that's vitally important as well. You give someone, a, people a vision and something to fight for again, I think. And I think that's a, that, that, that's a key to it because when we were looking at the, uh, I think it's the five-point plan CPI has, I think, well, this is visionary. This is something you could actually organise around and address to ordinary people because ordinary people get it about cost of living, uh, like we mentioned, trying to afford a better home, manufacturing as well, uh, and and quite a few other things that they feel they're very dear to. Um, and I think that's something where we go, well, we can get to ordinary people using the, the using this and, and really start that engagement. And like I said in one of my clips, um, using the federal election, even though we're not running candidates, but um, we can actually use this to actually communicate our message and actually engage with ordinary people. And, and the other events, you can build your networks as well. So, you know, elections, bourgeois elections uh, can, can be quite fan fantastic to actually build your connections, build your networks, getting your uh, message out there one way or the other. Even regardless of the, the party, any of the parties running may not represent working class interests, but still a great way to engage with people. Turning up to public forums such as can meet the candidates, asking the questions and really start getting the uh, get start putting the information back out there because no one else is going to do it i think that's a reality and i think when we kicked this off you guys were inspirational and i thought we need to get something going here in australia you know and yeah so i we got together with others and i mean look we've still got a lot of working out to do what um, where we move with it but and certainly, but it's been certainly an inspirational of the CPI. I've seen the great work you guys have done over there. And I thought, yep, yeah, we need we need to get we need to get something kicked off here in Australia. And hence why we, I don't think the, uh, there was some discussion around the name. I, I wanted to call it CPI Australia, but look, yeah. you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to lose sleep over the name. So yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. Well, whatever you call it, uh, you know, it sounds like you're doing great work, um, and I'm glad we've been a source of inspiration, uh, and it sounds like you're navigating a, a very similar political atmosphere. Um, so there you go. Um, well, I want to thank you, David, uh, for coming on. I really do appreciate it. That's um, right. And it, I really do appreciate the update from Australia. Uh, best, best wishes forward. with your labor organizing and best wishes with Australians for a new democracy. Oh, just one before more I go, just yeah, before yeah. I go, I'm, I'm currently reading ah. this in Yes, very so good. I, I highly recommend people if you want to, especially in America. Um, it's a really good read. Um, it's what he wrote. William Z. Foster is brilliant. Um, his writings are fantastic. Comrades, just uh, Google it, order it, uh, and that it's a, it's fantastic. Thank yeah, you. well, that, I mean, that's the text that inspired uh, Chris Smalls uh, in his exactly. uh, labor struggles. So there you go. Well, thank you, David, for everything, um, and thank I you. wish you the best. All right, all, thank you very much. All the best, comrades. Yep, thank you. Well, that was a great update from David Fox. Uh, it sounds like he's doing really important work out there in Australia.
facing a, a different atmosphere, but a similar one. Uh, you can certainly see some overlap. Now, before I end my opening remarks uh, and start answering super chat questions, do the roll call, etc., I actually wanted to um, react uh, to uh, a video uh, that was on MSNBC a couple days ago. Uh, for those of you who may not be aware, um, the Disinformation Governance Board uh, has been paused. Now, not abolished, but paused. Um, it seems like the reaction to the Disinformation Governance Board, uh, Nina Jankowitz, which is set to you know counter uh, people like us on here challenging the status quo, people us you know like us that are questioning their wars and questioning their economic policies and wanting to stand up for working families against the the billionaires and monopolists. Um, it seems like there's been such a reaction to it uh, that they have now paused it. So they brought Nina Jankowitz, uh, you know the crazy Broadway music singing anti-Russian hysterical uh, person from the Wilson Center they appointed to run their disinformation governance board. They actually brought her on MSNBC to, to try and basically defend the reputation of the disinformation governance board. So I'm actually going sh to show you her interview and we'll react to it here on this stream uh, before, we, uh, before we go and start answering questions. So keep the super chats rolling in. Don D from NYC is doing a great job writing them down. And we're just going to kind of play. We're going to see what Nina Jankowitz had to say. The Department of Homeland Security announced the creation of a disinformation governance board. It would be an entity to work to combat the very real dangerous issue of disinformation online and elsewhere with a stated goal to, quote, coordinate countering misinformation related to homeland security. Now, the woman appointed to lead that effort is a woman named Nina Jankowitz. She's a former disinformation fellow at the Wilson Center and the author of the book, How to Lose the Information War, which is about uh, international relations and disinformation. But almost immediately after the announcement, a right-wing frenzy ensued, helped along, I think, by the vaguely ominous title of the office. And she found herself on the receiving end of a concerted campaign by the very same forces disinformation her office would face now attacking her and undermining her credibility with wild conspiracy theories and lies. Now, did you hear that? So she wrote a book about how to lose the information war about the role of information in international relations. They're saying that the very people that reacted negatively to the formation of this board are the ones uh, who, who uh, you know, caused the upsurge to get it gotten rid of. Um, so it seems like everything so far is pretty much confirming what I've said. I mean, if you read her tweets, you look over her work at the Wilson Center, etc., she is very clearly, very, very, very clearly uh, worried about brainwashing Americans to support wars, brainwashing Americans to support the emerging low-wage police state, etc. Um, but you're going to hear something a little interesting in this interview. It was so much that yesterday DHS announced the formation of the office had been put on hold. And this morning, Nina Jankowitz resubmitted her resignation. Tonight, she joins me for her first television interview. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, first, just to start at ground level, like... Not singing, unfortunately. What was this thing uh, that, that was announced? And what was it going to do? 
Well, Chris, it was going to do exactly what you said. It, all these sensationalist narratives about what the board was, uh, what people thought the board was going to do are completely wrong. It was a coordinating mechanism. It was meant to, you know, make sure that the very large agency that is the Department of Homeland Security, that people were talking to each other within it. So let me give you an example. FEMA, the agency that handles disasters and environmental issues, uh, would often counter misinformation about natural disasters. And Let's say uh, a foreign adversary like Iran or China, perhaps, would put out a narrative that says, oh, you know, here's how you get out of this city or here's where you can find disaster aid. And that could put people really into danger, their lives into danger. Is that happening? Is that happening? I'm sorry. Can you show me one example of a time where Russia or China or Iran or Venezuela has put out false information about how to get away from a tornado or how to get away from a hurricane or how to get away from, you know, a tsunami or an earthquake. Can you show me one example of that ever happening? I, I mean, that's made up. That's pure fiction. And I'm sorry, I'm looking over her tweets and I'm looking over her writing at the Wilson Center. I'm not seeing anything on there about earthquakes and hurricanes and tornadoes. I'm not seeing any of that. Instead, I'm hearing information about Ukraine. I'm hearing information about Venezuela. I'm hearing about how we need to silence and shut down people who have counter narratives about U.S. foreign policy. She wrote a whole book called How to Lose the Information War. And that book didn't seem to be about earthquakes and tornadoes and hurricanes and getting people to safety. Uh, don't buy it. Don't buy it. That's the sort of disinformation and misinformation that we were looking to support the department in addressing to make sure that they had best practices and, most importantly, to protect Americans' freedom of speech, civil rights, civil liberty, liberties, and privacy while we were doing all of that. Isn't it interesting that the very day that they announced this board, I got banned from PayPal, Mint Press News got banned from PayPal. Two days later, Consortium News got banned from PayPal. Very interesting. Very interesting. But they were going to protect Americans' freedom of speech. That's what they're going to do. They're, they're there to protect Americans' freedom of speech. And it's and and you know, you know, even though all of her writing is about shutting down critics of US foreign policy, how to lose the information war. No, no, no. They were all just trying to get Americans to safety when there's a tornado. Give me a break. At work. So every characterization of the board that you've heard up until now has been incorrect. Uh, and frankly, it's kind of ironic that the board itself was taken over by disinformation when it was meant to fight it. So anyone who criticized the disinformation board is guilty of spreading disinformation. And part of that disinformation is thinking that the disinformation board might shut down people who are critical of the disinformation board. Do you see what the psychological trick that she's doing here? Right? So the disinformation board was never going to shut down people who are critical of it. And that's why the people that are critical of it are spreading disinformation about it. And if only we had the disinformation board, the disinformation board could have prevented the disinformation being spread by the people that were never going to be shut down by the disinformation board. Is this making your head want to explode right now? This makes absolutely no sense. This is like there are there are little confessions that everything said about this board was absolutely true underneath every statement that she is making. 
So just to, to sort of give the argument on the other side, I mean, when I was watching this play out and I was watching the frenzy develop, right, I sort of was running this thought experiment of like, well, how would I feel back in, you know, 2005 under the Bush administration if the Bush administration had announced this thing? I'm saying this very, very gently because I don't want to get canceled on social media for admitting there might be a legit criticism of this. I'm saying it very, very gently, very, very, very gently, because I'm all in with Chris Hayes. I do promotionals for Jacobin when Jacobin Magazine was promoted. I'm your, you know, I, I, I'm, I was, you know, cultivated. My career was launched by Rachel Maddow, and I don't want to actually argue with you because you're part of the deep state and all of that. But uh, you know, anyway, well, I mean, maybe somebody somehow might slightly have some possible criticism of this. Such hard-hitting journalism here with this title. Right. And they had appointed someone that I thought was, you know, a Republican or conservative. And, um, it, it, you know, it felt like, OK, well, here's uh, the use of the state, right? State power to patrol speech or to claim things or disinformation that they don't like. Like, what do you say to people that say, look and look, look at look at how she's blinking there. And she's just he's asking her the most gentle in the most gentle possible way. Chris Hayes is asking her like. You know, you might think there might be an issue with the government, you know, cracking down on certain opinions on the Internet. I I know. I, I mean, I'm just asking. And she's looking at him like, you jerk. I am going to kill you. Look at look at her. Look at her blinking. I mean, she wants. I mean, it's like she can't stand being asked this just basic question about what her whole career is about, what she's been calling for in her writing, uh, you know, countering anyone who challenges narratives about Russia or China or Iran. I mean, give me a break. Even if your intentions were good or this was just bureaucratic, that even. How dare you, Chris? How dare you ask this question? Stepping into this zone poses some non-crazy alarms for folks that are concerned about that kind of thing. Well, I fully understand Americans' concerns that they don't want government involved in policing speech and good news. Oh, she fully understands. That's why she was giving him the, the that scowl when he asked the question that I'm sure was a prepared question. Oh, she she fully, completely understands. This initiative wasn't involved in policing speech and neither was I. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, it is important. Did you hear that Kamala Harris nervous laugh to, you know, try to keep from getting angry? <laughs> that our government get involved when we have real threats to our national security. So it's not just uh, things like election interference, which we've seen and which DHS has combated also. Uh, no, actually. No, we haven't seen. Not a single vote was changed by Russia or China or Iran or Venezuela. No, no, there was no election interference. We have not seen any election interference. Facebook ads not election interference. And even that was debunked. If you looked at the court case that came out afterwards, they couldn't even prove uh, that, that the people involved had anything to do with the Russian government. So that, that you know, some Facebook ads and no, that, that, no, 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 we have not seen, have not seen false. But uh, threats at the border, disinformation that is driving people to migrate here, disinformation <laughs> that could affect critical infrastructure. Disinformation that's driving people to migrate here, like Hollywood movies that make the United States look like it's a paradise where the streets are paved with iPods, uh, you know, like uh, Real Housewives of New Jersey, uh, like all the propaganda. You know, if you watch American media, you would think that that the United States, that all of the United States looks like New York City and Southern California. You would think that every American is rich and parties and lives in rich houses. That's that's a huge part of what the United States has cultivated for itself around the world. People around the world really believe the United States is this happy, happy fun land full of alcohol and and dancing where no one has to do any work. And and, you know, everyone just has all kinds of sexy technology, um, you know, and uh, 
wow, wow. You know, uh, so, you know, if she's worried about what makes people migrate to the United States, uh, that's a big factor. And, you know, she should be cracking down on Hollywood and Real Housewives of New Jersey and mainstream American media. But on top of that, um, on top of that, uh, you know, one of the main reasons people migrate to the United States is because of economic demolition of their countries by free market capitalism. You know, take a look at Guatemala. Take a look at Honduras. These are two countries that the neoliberal economic policies have ground them into poverty. Guatemala had a longtime dictator named Rios Montt who slaughtered the indigenous people. Uh, you know, and then after that, Guatemala had years, decades of free market reforms. At this point, they don't even have a, a functioning post office uh, because they privatized the post office. And and at this point, and then they couldn't pay couldn't pay the bill, and so now they don't have a functioning post office. Honduras. You know, they elected Manuel Zelaya, the socialist president. The USA toppled Manuel Zelaya. And then they had a military dictator, Michelete. And then after that, they had a free market regime that devastated the country. There's all kinds of drug gangs running through Guatemala, running through Honduras, running through Mexico that are armed with U.S.-grade weapons. That's one of the main reasons that caused people to come to the United States. So she's worried about disinformation causing people to come to the United States. I think the first thing is mainstream U.S. media. That, that propagates the idea that the USA is a happy, happy fun land full of free market liberalism and wealth and prosperity, not showing the real America. That's number one. The real America where the power grid collapses in Texas, the real America where drinking water isn't properly purified and children drink lead in their water and become disabled for their whole life, uh, the real America where the roads are falling apart. So that's one. Number two, uh, on top of that, uh, the real reason people immigrate is not because of disinformation. It's because of the evil neoliberal economic policies the United States has forced on South and Central America. So, you know, she's just wrong there. I mean, I, I don't know. You know, is this disinformation board going to be like, are they going to show movies? America is not really what it appears to be on TV. I mean, I mean, this is silliness. Like our financial systems and gas pipelines, all of that has very real effects for the safety of Americans. And frankly, I think DHS and other federal agencies need to be involved because this problem isn't going away. It's only getting worse. Do you see Chris Hayes there? He's like, this is my job. I have to pretend to believe her. That's my job. He's got this kind of sad look on his face like, you know, I was against Bush. I was a, an anti-Bush person. And I have to pretend to believe this now. This is where the Democratic Party and MSNBC has gone. I hate my life. Well, here's so let's talk about combat, because I think that word is interesting, right? Like, what does that mean tangibly? Right. If if, if when you say combat disinformation, um, because obviously we're it's, it's a scary word, you know, combating disinformation. It sounds like you're going to fight. Can't we use nicer words like like present alternative? I mean. That's what it's all about with these people. Language, right? That's the woke crowd. You know, you're using you're using scary words. You're using scary words, Caleb. If you hear me clap once, if you hear me clap twice, we don't combat things here. What we do is we share with each other. That's what we do at our thing. You know, if only she used the right words. I think sure that's what everyone's concerned about. They're concerned about the big, mean, scary, authoritarian words that she used, not what they do. Thanks, thanks for sticking up for, for us, Chris. That's what everyone's concerned about, combat. We're having an incredibly intense meta debate about speech and platforms, regulation and moderation there, you know, of them. So what is what is your vision or what would the board's vision or anyone's vision at, from a government potential perspective be to combat disinformation? 
a lot of the work that DHS has been doing for over a decade now is just about putting good information out there. Again, information about where Americans can seek disaster. Oh, totally good information. Like, do you remember when they first created the Department of Homeland Security and they had the, the orange or the threat level has been raised to orange and now the threat level is down to yellow, but then the height is that threat levels up to red and getting everyone terrified about the, the orange alert and the green alert and the, the purple and the yellow alert. Yeah, such good information, such good information, right? And when they send informants into mosques, you know, you know, to try and frame up Muslims and get them on a, get them on a mic, on a hot mic, you know, making a joke so they can arrest their whole family and announce they solved a terrorist plot. You know, that's, that's, that's such, such good information that they do. Right. Um, you know, and, and that, that wasn't that other thing that they put out that great little piece about domestic terrorism, where they said anarchists are domestic terrorists and socialists are domestic terrorists and environmentalists are domestic terrorists. Isn't that such great, great information that they're putting out there? Aid, information about where Americans can vote, information about the border not being open, for instance. So that that's one thing that I had hoped that we would do. And I'm also. Yeah, that's that's true. All the people that are coming to the United States, they just never got the memo that the border wasn't open. Right. Um, you know, they no one ever told them that there's this, you know, fence that you have to like, you know, you know, get a get papers and, and a green card to come. No one told them. They just didn't know the border wasn't open. You know, all these people in Mexico coming over the border, all the dead bodies they find, they just didn't hear. Nina never got a chance to send them a message and say that the border isn't open. I mean, do they think we're stupid? Do they really think we're stupid? Do they think we're stupid? Seriously. I spent a lot of my career, you know, testifying both before Republicans and Democrats on both sides of the aisle, advising foreign governments about how to build resilience in populations. People need the tools to navigate today's information environment. It's incredibly overwhelming. And so I had hoped that we would do some creative programs to equip people with the tools they need. Yeah. And we've seen the videos, Nina. We've seen the videos where you tell people, uh, basically, if you see something that sounds like it goes against what the mainstream wants to believe, don't believe it. Look the other way. We've seen the videos. Your work is everywhere. You are very, very visible. We can watch. We've seen, can see everything you've done with the Wilson Center. You're all over social media saying that we shouldn't, we shouldn't believe anything about Ukraine that doesn't match what CNN says. You're all over social media fighting with Max Blumenthal. Like we know what you're about and it's not about, you know, telling people that the border's closed and it's not about telling people what to do when there's a tornado. We know what you're all about, Nina. Nice try. Need to find that information in today's information environment, not to say what was true or false. That was never the intention. Never, never the intention. No, never, never, never. All the papers that she wrote about about, you know, Russia and China and about, you know, combating alternative voices and her whole book that she wrote about how to lose the information. All that has nothing, 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 nothing to do with, nothing to do with, with, with telling people what they should believe and what not to believe. No, 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 no. Never, never, never. Um, one more question on this, and then I want to ask about your personal experience. But what, how is different information, sorry, how is disinformation as a category different than just stuff that's wrong? Right. Because sometimes I, I think that term itself, like it's a little bit of a fuzzy boundary, right? Like people are wrong about lots of things. There's lots of wrong stuff online. There's wrong stuff said by people that I love. But why is it? What is the category of disinformation that makes that distinct from wrong stuff? 
Yeah, that's a great question and something that often is is mischaracterized as well. Disinformation is false or misleading information spread with malign intent. So that's when we have those those bad actors, our our foreign adversaries like China, Iran, maybe Russia, spreading that stuff. Oh, oh, wait, wait! I thought it was just about how to get through a tornado. It, it wasn't. It wasn't. Uh, you know, countering U.S. war narratives or anything like that. No, no, no. It's not. It's not Chinese media. It's not Russian media. It's not, you know, Cuban or Venezuelan media. It's not Iranian media. No, no, no. No, it's just supposed to be about helping us, helping us find, uh, find, you know, a place to hide during a tornado. Again, every, like every two seconds, she gets out, you know, something that counters exactly what she's saying. Like we're watching this. So there you go. Disinformation is also harmful, but it's when, you know, Aunt Sally or Uncle John are spreading those those rumors or conspiracy theories at the, the dinner table. It can have effects on, on people's livelihoods and safety as well. But again, we were focused on, on disinformation, that disinformation spread with malign intent. And that wasn't anything to do with politics. What? It was, again, where disinformation crossed homeland security and the safety of the American people. That's interesting. Now, how does the intent have anything to do with whether or not something's true or false? I mean, I, I mean, I'm just telling you, you know, if if someone is on trial for murder and someone presents evidence, and says their fingerprints were on the knife, the judge doesn't say, well, your intent with whether or not those fingerprints are on the knife, your intent by presenting that is to convict the person. So I can't believe you. No. Are the fingerprints on the knife or not? You know, your intent has absolutely nothing to do with whether or not it's true or false, right? I mean, you know, the Revolutionary War of the United States was taking place. It started in 1775. No matter what my intent in, intent is, the fact is the first shots of the American Revolution did happen in 1775. The U.S. Declaration of Independence was signed in 1776. No matter what my intention, no matter what my intent is, it's still true. So the fact that they're taking into account the intent of who's spreading the information means it's not about protecting you and helping you know what's true and what's not. It's about, you know, making sure that information spread with good intent, i.e. U.S. government intent is widespread, and that information spread with bad intent, i.e. anti-imperialism, standing up to the police state, fighting for working families against the ultra-monopolists who are destroying the country, about making sure that doesn't get out there. This has absolutely nothing to do. If you're taking intent into account, you're at that point, um, you know, there you go. Um, there you go. All righty. That's, a, I think, actually a really useful definitional distinction, precisely to sort of put those at odds. Um, finally, we have about 90 seconds left. Like, I have watched this happen multiple times in my public life career. Van Jones, when he was at a, a position in the White House, who was run out of office because he'd signed some petition. And Shirley Sherrod, who was a, a officer of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, who said something wildly taken out of context. Like, what was the experience of being the focal point of this sort of like massive frenzy like over the last few weeks? Oh, it's just been so hard for her. What's it like, you know, to, to have so many people be mad at you on the internet. Oh, well, God. It, it was really overwhelming, Chris. I mean, frankly, you know, I have prided myself. Oh. You know, it's really overwhelming to have a bunch of bread tubers making hate videos, trying to convince people that you're a Nazi uh, all over the internet when you've spent your life uh, doing anti-racist work. You know, that's not been fun either, Nina. You know, it's not been fun for me uh, to have all kinds of people 
uh, you know, that used to be my friends not speak to me because all kinds of people, you know, aligned with her have spread all kinds of lies all over the internet about me. You know, it's really not fun to be banned from PayPal and you can no longer accept donations from PayPal. It's really not fun to have your Twitter labeled Russian state affiliated media when you're a US citizen and it's your personal Twitter account and you don't, you know, you, you use it purely for your own thing. You know, uh, you know, screw you, Nina. Oh, people were mad at me on the internet because I got hired by the government to help silence people who think critically. Give me a break over my career of being a really nuanced, uh, reasonable person. Again, as I said, I've I've briefed. Yeah, that, that 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 song she did was so nuanced. That song she did that 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 you know that that song it was just so reasonable, so nuanced. Advised both break. Republicans and Democrats. I admire some of the steps that the Trump administration even took to combat disinformation, including Senator Rob Portman and his bills against deep fakes and you know funding the Global Engagement Center at the State Department. So. Yeah, the Global Engagement Center at the State Department. Billions of dollars, billions of dollars has been spent to set up troll farms and bots and all kinds of people to smear and destroy the reputations of anybody who challenges the status quo. That's why there's all kinds of YouTube videos on the internet demonizing me and saying bullshit lies about me. That's why I was banned from PayPal. That's why my personal Twitter is tagged Russian state-affiliated media. That's why there are, there are all these accounts that do nothing but harass outspoken anti-imperialist voices. I mean, you know, all billions of dollars has been poured into the Global Engagement Center, the State Department, the Pentagon has their kinds of things. Yes, all kinds of money has been poured into trying to shut down dissent on the Internet, trying to ruin the reputation and careers and lives of people who challenge the U.S. status quo. Uh, yeah, that's going on. And you're part of that. And your disinformation governance board is part of that. And that's why everyone flipped out. And what's interesting is that it seems like one of the main groups that flipped out uh, was Republicans because American politics has gotten so messy and there are divisions in the ruling class right now. And the, the Republicans basically determined that this was going to be used against them. To say that I'm just a partisan actor was was wildly out of context. And then beyond that, it wasn't just, you know, these mischaracterizations of of my work, but it was death threats against my family. Over the last three weeks, I have maybe had one or two days I didn't report a violent threat, something like we're coming for you and your family. You and your family should be sent to Russia to be killed. Encouragement of me to commit suicide. Um, all of those have been forwarded to the Department of Homeland Security's uh, security services. And, you know, that's that. Does she think that that hasn't happened to all the people whose lives and reputations she goes after? Do you think that Max Blumenthal and Gray Zone don't get threats? Uh, do you think that all of us who worked at RT don't get threats? Uh, you know, all the people that she goes out of her way to smear and malign and try in order to try and protect U.S. media narratives. Do you think we don't get threats? Do you think we don't get harassed? Do you think we don't deal with problems? Give me a break. You know, it's never okay to threaten anybody. It's never okay to harass anybody. But I'm sorry, but it's like because of her and her efforts to counter disinformation, i.e. the truth about Ukraine, i.e. the truth about Venezuela, i.e. the truth about Cuba, all kinds of people have lost jobs, lost careers, lost income, lost threats, you know, you know, not been able to speak to family members. Give me a break. You know, she's got a cozy job at the Wilson Center, one of the main CIA intelligence think tanks, and uh, she's going to go right back to that. Such a hard time to be Nina.
that's not uh, something that is American. That is not how we should be acting when we have disagreements about policy in this country. I think we need to learn how to be adults in the room. Uh Agreed. So maybe, maybe instead of trying to ban people from Facebook and Twitter and social media, you can argue with them. How about that? And maybe instead of instead of trying to shut down dissident voices and accuse them of being agents of a foreign power and and shut down alternative TV networks and shut down dissident voices, maybe you should actually uh, engage with these ideas and do the American thing and and debate these folks and not declare people to be misinformation just because you disagree with them. Oh, did I just? Okay. All right. Well. Three weeks, I have maybe had one or two something that is American. That is not how we should be acting when we have disagreements about policy in this country. I think we need to learn how to be adults in the room. Um, and I don't have time for that childishness. I'm not going to let it silence me. I'm going to go forward and, and continue uh, building awareness about this threat in the future. All right, Nina Jankowitz, I'm very sorry that happened to you, really. Um, and thank you for taking some time tonight. I really appreciate it. All right. All right. Um, but it's worth noting, and I think, you know, somebody in the chat made this point, and this is worth noting as well. Uh, don't believe anything she says. And I mean, I don't, I don't know, you know, and people say that's a fallacy, right? I'm sure she did say some true things in that interview. I'm sure she did get those threats. That's true. So just because she says it doesn't mean it's false, right? So we're not going to fall into that fallacy. But at the same time, uh, she's an intelligence asset, right? I mean, the Department of Homeland Security is an intelligence agency, uh, she's, you know, she's tied in with the director of national intelligence. Uh, you know, she's an intelligence asset. And for those of you who maybe don't remember when John Brennan became CIA director under Obama, uh, it came out that he had denied the drone strike program and he'd said it wasn't happening when it was, and he'd lied and everyone was okay with that. Cause they said, well, he's a CIA guy. CIA guys lie. That's just what they do. Mike Pompeo said that the CIA, when he was at the CIA, they lied, they cheated, they stole, you know, I mean, intelligence people, people that are involved in the intelligence apparatus, the spying entities in the U.S. government, they call the intelligence agencies, the FBI, the CIA, naval intelligence, military intelligence, Coast Guard intelligence, Department of Homeland Security. These people lie all the time. It's part of their job. And it comes out years later that they lied. It comes out years later that they lied, and everyone's just like, yeah, that's okay, because they lied. Do you think when MKUltra was going on, the CIA was getting giving people LSD to, and distributing LSD on college campuses, do you think they were going around saying they were doing that? No. you think if you'd asked a representative of the CIA, hey, are you distributing drugs? They would have said, ha, 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 that's preposterous. That must be a conspiracy theory you heard from Russia. And it was true. You know, I mean, it's like you can't believe intelligence people. It is part of their job to lie. So anything that she says there, that whole interview, was so contradictory where she's admitting that what we're saying is true and then she's saying what we're saying is a lie and then she's admitting that what we're saying is true and then she's saying that what we're saying is a lie. Like she contradicted herself so many times in that interview it made your head want to spin. You know, it had no has nothing to do with countering critics of U.S. foreign policy, countering alternative narratives about global events. Uh, it's just about keeping people safe and that's why we got to stuck. I mean, it's like, it's like she kept contradicting herself throughout the interview, messing with your mind. That was really, really something. Um, I'll just tell you what I think about this and then we'll start answering super chat questions. Um, uh, I'll tell you what I think. I think that, that this was what we just have seen at the beginning of, of, you know, since, you know, the Ukraine stuff got going. This, this was a test run for world war three. 
Um, they wanted to see how far they could push it, right? Um, they they shut down alternative media. They put Uber sanctions on Russia. They had a full mobilization, all in for Ukraine, all in for Ukraine, and mobilizing uh, and demonizing anti anti uh, anti imperialist voices, trying to shut them down. Uh, you know, they created this disinformation governance board, and it was to see how far they could push it. Now they're starting to scale back. Now the $40 billion for Ukraine did just go through. That went through today. Um, the Congress passed it. Rand Paul was the only senator who stood against it, but he ultimately was was prevented from, from you know blocking it or whatever. Um, but I, I feel like this was an experiment. They were seeing, okay, let's let's you know put our foot on the gas pedal and see how far we can push this stuff. Um, and uh, it looks like now, now that we have the... You know, Rand Paul was opposing the $40 billion. Marjorie Taylor Greene did her thing. Uh, now the Disinformation Governance Board has been paused and Nina Jankowicz has resigned. They're slowing it down a little bit. And they're saying, all right, we're, we're slowing it down a little bit. But they were trying to see just how far they could go with it. This was all an experiment. And they were taking notes about how all of us reacted. They were taking notes about how I reacted on this YouTube channel. They were taking notes to how you reacted. They were taking notes to how the mainstream media reacted, to how Tucker Carlson reacted, to how Russia reacted, to how China reacted. They were taking notes. And that seems to be what happened, is that they said, all right, we're going to put our foot on the gas pedal, and we're going to see what happens so that when it's time to put our foot on the gas pedal and go full speed ahead, we'll know how everyone will react. They do this, right? It's like a test run, right? And that's what this was. This was a test run about how they can shut down dissent, how they can, um, you know, how they can silence, uh, you know, folks. That's that's what's going on. Um, it looks like at the moment they're they're lifting their foot up a little bit. They're not going as full speed ahead as they were about a month ago or two months ago. But we don't know. I mean, it, there's no guarantee that this is going to be a long reprieve. But at the moment, they seem to have taken their foot off the gas pedal. They seem to be slowing down a little bit. But we shall see what happens. But I just thought that was worth talking about as well. All right, folks. Names and locations. Names and locations. I will call you out as I see you. Names and locations. David, uh, 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 Don is going to send me the super chats. Um, you know, um, you know. But there you go. Uh, there you go. Um, all right. Names and locations, folks, names and locations. I will call you out as I see you. Don is going to send me the super chats and there we go. So we got Ryan in Oakland class analysis, Melbourne, uh, Clyde. Uh, we got Australia. We got Houston. We got Sean in Portland, Oregon. We got Mike in North Carolina, rice from Adelaide, Australia, Neil Frazier in Hong Kong, vitamin D from Berkeley, Mike in Bogota, Jose Gonzalez from Caracas, Kendall in San Diego, Union County, Durham, North Carolina, Jenny Lynn from Cincinnati, Mo from Toronto, Scott in Miami, JR in Kalamazoo, Pahi in Albuquerque, Enoch in Australia, uh, Anthony, um, uh, we got Melbourne, Sosa in Melbourne, Charlotte and Jim in Palmer, Massachusetts, Kinky and Joshua Tree, shout out to you, Kinky. All right, we got Tex AGP. We got um, oh, we got another super chat. Any thoughts on the Jakarta method? Haven't read the book, but I can talk about Indonesia in the '60s. So let me add that to the list. Um, that should be fine. Um, we got Don D in NYC. Good to talk to you, Don. 
Uh, I got Harold Sullivan in Naples, Florida, Dario from Brooklyn, Jonathan Blazer. Um, we got Bob Troy, New York, Chance in Saskatchewan. Um, we got David uh, from Canada. Um, very, very, very good, folks. Very, very good. We got Herb Bryant. Thank you for the super chat. Much appreciated. Auckland, New Zealand. Uh, Bob Troy from New York. Uh, Yada Yusrul. Uh, Mosin from Iran. Uh, very, very good. Tex AGP. Good stuff, folks. Good stuff. Good stuff. Don, I'm pulling up Don's super chats. Much appreciated. Um, all right. All right. Um, okay. Just pasting them and I'll add the Indonesia one. Right. Sorry for the pause there, folks. And Indonesia in the 60s. All right. Um, all righty. All righty. Back, back again. Uh, so we've got um, Antonio from New York. Uh, or no, we got Josh from St. Louis. Joey P from South Jersey. San Jose. Antonio from New York. Vancouver. Micah from Las Vegas. Um, very, very good. Very, very good. And if anyone else has more super chat questions, by all means, I am happy to answer them. Happy to answer them. Uh, Juan from Italy, San Santa Fe, Texas. Very, very good. Juan is saying cheers. Thank you, Juan. All right. Tony from Oregon, Cedar Park, Texas. Very, very good. Very, 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 very good. All right, folks. Now, um, couple things, a uh, couple business announcements. If you're a member of the Center for Political Innovation, uh, you should have received an invitation from retreat coordinator Lily Goldplang to our four-day uh, four national gathering. So if you're a member and you haven't gotten one, uh, check your spam folder, check your inbox. Uh, you should have one. If not, you can contact me directly for some reason if you didn't get a direct uh, an invitation. I'm at calebmoppin at gmail.com. If you haven't joined the Center for Political Innovation, now is the time to join. We ought to have more members, right? Uh, we are trying to uh, expand our membership. We have a special initiative going on. Um, uh, all right. Some allies and recommend contemporary media personalities and outlets. All right. Recommend the media personalities and outlets. Um, and... Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of where that's at. Um, it's going to be a great four-day national gathering coming up. Uh, but yeah, we have the link down below to join the Center for Political Innovation. Um, we need more members, and we're going to have a great workshop uh, about Marxism. David Rovix, the folk folk musician, will be performing there. Uh, some great classes are going to happen. Um, it's going to be a great four days in Kansas. So if you can make it, that would be awesome. Um, I sent a second super chat email. It doesn't include Indonesia. All right, that's fine. Uh, that's fine. All right. All right. Um, uh, okay. Um, all right. Okay. Just checking everything here. All right. Okay. All right. Very, very good. Just writing these things down. Just making sure we get the super chats. Um, and now I'm going to start answering super chat questions. That's how it's going to work. Um, so there you go. There you go. All right, everybody. I'm going to start answering your super chat questions. First one comes from Max the Sax. He asks, 
Fights between the Eastern establishment of Herbert Walker Bush versus the Reaganites struggles in the 70s and 90s. What the hell happened with Haig, Hinckley, and Bush? Well, I mean, we don't know. I mean, we really don't know at the end of the day. Um, you know, um, maybe. I, I might be open to that, uh, possibly. Maybe. Um, you know. All right. Make sure this is working. Um, audio. Yep, we're working. All right. Very good. All right. So um, we don't know for sure, you know, and that's the whole thing about this. You know, there are some questions that can be raised um, about what happened um, with Hinckley, right? Um, that right after Ronald Reagan was elected, Ronald Reagan was running for president. When he was running for president, he was a far right wing kind of guy. Uh, you know, he started his campaign in the town of Money, Mississippi, um, and he said, we believe in states' rights, which was a white supremacist, you know, that was the National States' Rights Party, that was, you know, that was that. Um, he's tied to the, you know, military, you know, industrial complex, and he, he was kind of a far right-wing guy um, who was leading kind of, you know, Jimmy Carter and, and had presided over kind of the, the economic slowdown. Um, and there was kind of this right-wing backlash to the economic slowdown and Reagan was, was rising into power. Um, and Bush represented at that point, the mainstream of the Republican party, uh, the more, more Rockefeller Republicans, the more, the more Eastern establishment, old money, you know, Bush, the Bush family they're you know, they come out of Yale and it's, you know, Connecticut and they're old money. Um, and Bush you know, George Herbert Walker Bush was very opposed to Reagan and they represented different wings of the Republican party. Um, and Reagan basically compromised with the old wing of the Republican party and brought Bush former CIA director to be his vice presidential running mate. Reagan got elected. And shortly after he was elected, he was speaking at the AFL CIO convention, the labor union convention. And as he was walking to his limo, uh, Reagan was shot. Um, and he was shot by John Hinckley, uh, and he also, a secret serviceman, was, was also hit. And who was John Hinckley? Well, John Hinckley was a, a mentally ill guy who was a singer-songwriter, but John Hinckley's parents were wealthy Texas oil people who had done business deals with the Bush family. Um, and, you know, if you look into it, Neil Bush, who was in the Bush family, had kind of a relationship, at least a friendship to some degree or other with, you know, with John Hinckley's father. Um, but other than that, we don't know what happened. Um, you know, I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, the, you know, John Hinckley shot Reagan. Um, and so John Hinckley shot Reagan. Um, and the story that we got in the media was that he did it to impress Jodie Foster. He was really into the actress Jodie Foster, and he thought that, you know, shooting the president would get Jodie Foster's attention. Um, so then he was put on trial and he's one of the only, um, only, only cases where someone was found not guilty for reasons of insanity, uh, which was very wild, right? I mean, how, I mean, when does that happen when someone shoots the president and then they get found not guilty for reasons of insanity. So instead of being put in prison, he was put in a mental hospital. Um, and now he has a YouTube channel, I believe, I believe if I'm not mistaken, he has a YouTube channel where he plays songs. He's not allowed to talk about politics or anything. Um, it's all a very strange story. And at the end of the day, we don't really know what happened. I mean, you know, official 
version of events is that it was just just happened to be this rich kid, you know, from a Texas oil family, uh, you know, who wanted to impress Jodie Foster and he shot Reagan. Many people looked at the situation and said there's some kind of contradiction, you know, within the Republican camp. This is the Bush people threatening Reagan. This is Reagan represents kind of the lower level capitalists. This is the Yankee and cowboy war within the Republican Party and that Bush is the Eastern establishment and Reagan is lower level capitalists. And, you know, we don't really know at the end of the day, we don't really know. And you got to be careful about this kind of thing. You don't want to say anything that's not true. Right. And I don't, I don't know. I don't know what happened. I don't know what was going through John Hinckley's mind. I don't know, you know, but you know, a lot of people look at it and say, John Hinckley is somebody, you know, with connections to the Bush family. Bush didn't like Reagan Something could have been going on there. I, I'll tell you, I was furious when I was watching the, um, the uh, what was that guy, uh, that, that guy, John Oliver, and he was talking about conspiracy theories. And he said, there's no conspiracies about the attempted assassination of Reagan in 1981. Yes, there are. There are lots of conspiracy theories about that because, you know, there are definitely conspiracy theories about it. When he said there's none, I was just like, how can he say that? I mean, a lot of people speculated about that. Another weird thing that happened, many people may not be aware of, is that John Lennon was assassinated shortly before, um, you know, before uh, the uh, the Reagan presidency, which is also very sketch, right? John Lennon, uh, very famous uh, left wing, former member of the Beatles, you know, he was shot, um, you know, uh, and he was just apparently somebody walked into his, you know, up to near the Dakota building where he lives and he lived in New York City and shot him. Um, and that was also, the timing was a little bit weird, right? You know, right as the USA is taking a dramatic turn to the right with the Reagan revolution, this guy who's donated money to the Black Panthers, who's donated money to, um, you know, to the, uh, you know, the, you know, left-wing groups. He did the song Imagine, you know, this, this guy that, uh, you know, that, that they tried to get him deported from the United States. They tried to block his U.S. Uh, work visa, his U.S. residency because of his, you know, association with radical groups that he got shot, you know, right, um, you know, around that same time. Someone also says the Pope was shot in 1981. Interesting. Again, a lot of, you know, a lot of assassinations happened around this time. The transition from Reagan, from Carter to Reagan, I have actually made a timeline of this because it's like, it's nutty. It's nutty, right? You know, so many things were happening. Jonestown, Greensboro Massacre, uh, you know, um, you know, I mean, if you start, you know, the Iran hostage crisis, you look at there were so many events happening during that time period, you know, 78, 79, 1980, 1981. There was, it was like boom, 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 right? There were just so many assassinations, so many, so many instances where one group, one, one, you know, group is fighting another group. Um, it's a little bit weird. That was a dramatic shift in U.S. politics. Let me just put it that way. You know, we now know it is a matter of public record that Reagan asked the Ayatollah uh, Khomeini not to not to uh, release the Iran hostages until he took office. That's a that's public record. That is not a secret that, that Reagan specifically asked that they hold the hostages in Iran, uh, you know, because it would help him get elected. Now that's big, you know, you know, and there's, there's so much stuff that was going on. Um, so, you know, we just really don't know what was going on, but a lot of things happen. So There you go. Um, why is there a baby formula shortage in the United States? Asked Gabby Hernandez. 
Um, supply chain issues um, is a big factor. Uh, you know, the fact the pandemic and supply chain issues with the pandemic. Uh, also, um, this is related to the rising costs of food and, and food shortages. Um, that is a, a factor as well. Um, and it's also related to ongoing issues related to the production of baby formula. Uh, so you add all of those things together and we have a baby formula shortage. And it's a very serious situation. And I think that should be a priority, uh, not fighting, you know, fighting against uh, Ukraine and not fighting against Russia and Ukraine. Um, but yes, I mean, it's related to the fact that we have a very irrational system. We have a system of production organized for profit, not for social good. And it's, it, it's been building up to this for a long time. And there's been people, you know, trying to raise the alarm about this. Um, and, uh, and they've been ignored because the system of production organized for profit functions based on what's profitable, not public good. All right. I already asked David the question in the interview. All right. Uh, what's my opinion about the Joker movie 2019 as a Marxist? And it was really amazing and generated similar outrage to Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. I made a decision not to go see the Joker. And the reason I made a decision is because I work with a lot of younger people who get into Marxism and are activists. And I read a summary of the movie and I talked to friends who'd seen the movie. And it seemed like it was going to remind me too much of sad things that I have seen. Um, I don't want to get into specifics, but there are a lot of people that I've known um, that have had hardships similar to what was described in that movie. Um, and I just thought, you know, I don't want to see this. That's what I thought. Um, you know, I mean, so many young people, um, you know, struggle, uh, you know, with, with depression. So many young people have problematic relationships with their parents. Um, and I deal with a lot of younger folks that are really struggling. I mean, there's a lot of people that are part of our Center for Political Innovation community that have really faced a lot of hardship in their life, um, you know, and are struggling, especially to be a young person now with the economy, the way it is, uh, with, you know, the social breakdown. I just, I just didn't want to see it. You know, um, I read what it was about and I thought it's probably important that they made this movie because it gives voice, uh, gives voice to the economic suffering that a lot of younger people feel as well as, you know, the mental health crisis, as well as, you know, problematic relationships and parents and, you know, it all, you know, it all makes sense. But I all, I really don't like that guy who makes the new Batman movies. I'll just be honest with you. Um, you know, the new Batman movies, all of them. I mean, I saw them all. Dark Knight Rises, and I, I don't like them. I mean, I just don't like them. And so it was made by that guy. Uh, and on top of being made by that guy, um, it was, I read the subject matter, and I just thought, you know, I don't want to see it. I really don't want to see it. Um Mr. Smith Goes to Washington is a, is a different movie altogether. Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, that's the Roosevelt era. That's Jimmy Stewart. And it's kind of a populist uh, film about an ordinary working class guy who gets into Washington and sees how crooked and corrupt it is. Um, and it's got kind of an optimistic ending, right? Um, but, uh, but there you go. Um, there you go. All right. Um, Indonesia in the 1960s. Um, in 1964, in the early 1960s, you had a socialist leader uh, in Indonesia who was moving the country towards socialism, setting up an independent socialist military, uh, was aligned with China. But then um, in 1965, the USA toppled the government of Indonesia and established a, uh, a military dictatorship. Um, and the CIA provided uh, the, uh, the assassins, um, you know, in the Indonesian military with all the communist party sympathizers to assassinate and murder them. 
Um, but then from there, it turned into a genocide against ethnically Chinese people because there was a large amount of ethnically Chinese people that were in the Communist Party of Indonesia. And so they just began slaughtering entire neighborhoods of ethnically Chinese people. Um, it's interesting because um, many people have pointed out that that anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism and the bigotry that you find against ethnically Chinese people in the Pacific it, it's very similar. Uh, the stereotype about ethnically Chinese people is that they're all rich, which they're not, uh, that they all are cheap and don't spend their money, which they're not, that they're all communists, which they definitely are not, um, that they're all, um, you know, that they all don't have good morals and are, are sex freaks or something like that, and which they're not. Um, and if you go to Indonesia, you go to Malaysia, you go to different parts of the Pacific, ethnically Chinese communities face this this hostility, which is very similar to anti-Semitism, um, so much so that I believe in in um, I believe it's in Malaysia. Some of the uh, the the imams that are aligned with Saudi Arabia will actually say wild things like Chinese ethnically Chinese people are actually Jews, etc. But it's been pointed out that that actually in a lot of cases, you know, this is this is really it's it's kind of resentment between. The middle class, like the petty bourgeoisie, like small store owners and the working class. And that anti-Semitism is a weird, it, it takes an ethnic form, but among, you know, among, in, among people in Indonesia, there is an, an over-representation of ethnically Chinese people in the middle class. There's more Chinese small business owners. Uh, and in Malaysia and places like that, because of, of the history Ethnically Chinese people in the Pacific regions tend to be small business owners more, um, and that uh, that because of that there becomes an ethnic stereotype that's based that's similar to anti-Semitism, right? And it's true. There's a lot of Jewish small business owners too, right? And so so it's it's interesting that many people have argued that anti-Semitism is a weird racialized, you know, racialized ethnic bigotry form of, of incarnating some aspects of, of, you know, resentment from the working class against the petty bourgeoisie. Because at the end of the day, the real oppressor you cannot see, right? The real oppressor is the ruling class, the owners of capital, the owners of the big corporations and banks. But average working class people are never going to encounter. They're never going to meet the Rockefellers. They're never going to meet Jeff Bezos. They're never going to meet Bill Gates. But they are going to meet the guy who owns the store in their neighborhood. And they are going to meet, you know, you know, the, you know, you know, you know, the, the lawyer or the doctor that they deal with and that, that because in the Pacific regions, ethnically Chinese people are statistically more likely to be small store owners, statistically more likely to be lawyers, um, you know, and you can start to associate things that you might observe about a lawyer or a doctor. Uh, you can associate that with his ethnic group because that's how people often think they think in terms of ethnicity and that a lot of the stereotypes that you associate with ethnically chinese people in the pacific regions and a lot of the stereotypes that anti-semites promote about jews are class stereotypes um and and that's interesting to think about i'm not going to get into any, any more specifics someone could probably dig through this and find something i said and take it out of context and claim i'm preaching anti-semitism here uh but there's some interesting sociological studies people have done about the bigotry against ethnically chinese people and anti-semitism and how they overlap and how it may be rooted in this kind of middle class versus working class you know thing that at the end of the day both you know, the proletariat, the wage worker, and the small business owner, they share a common enemy.
which is the monopolists, the, the billionaire elite, the capitalists. So, but unfortunately, they're they're together, but their means of subsistence is very different. The way the small business owner makes his money, the way the doctor makes his money, the way the lawyer makes his money versus the way the wage worker makes his money is very different. So the way that they're going to approach different things and, and is going to be different, right? Because they're in different life circumstances. And that I think that's an interesting insight. Um, it could be wrong. Um, but anyway, that was kind of a, a, a tangent. But um, but. I mean, what was done in 1965 was the USA facilitated the overthrow of the Indonesian government by the military um, and then the slaughter of half a million people. I mean, the Indonesian military massacred all kind. I mean, killed basically almost every member of the Communist Party of Indonesia, slaughtered entire ethnically Chinese neighborhoods. Uh, the, the rivers in the capital of Indonesia were clogged uh, with, um, with bodies. Um, you know, it's it's it was really horrendous what happened in Indonesia in 1965. What's also worth noting is that Barack Obama, uh, as a child, uh, was living there. Um, you know, his father was a, his stepfather, uh, Lolo Lolo Satoro, uh, was a leader of the Indonesian military that was doing this kind of work, and that Obama's mother, Ann Dunham, uh, she worked for the Ford Foundation. She was an academic working for the Ford Foundation. The Ford Foundation, you know, they commission all kinds of research, but, you know, it's research that is often tied in with intelligence. And yeah, I mean, that's, you know, it, it, Obama's life uh, is very much tied in with that coup uh, and with that, um, you know, there you go. So that's worth pointing out as well. Recommended media personalities and outlets. Um, I, Obviously, I recommend RT. We do great work at RT. Um, we're holding U.S. media accountable. That's why they're trying to suppress us all over the world. That's why the USA is, you know, accusing us of being disinformation, etc. I recommend Press TV from Iran. They do great stuff. Um, I recommend Mint Press News. Mint Press News uh, with Minara Deli. Uh, he's awesome. I recommend Gray Zone uh, with Max Blumenthal. They do amazing work. They're great. Uh, what else do I recommend? Um, I, you know, I actually, I think that a lot of the commentary that you find on the Hill, uh, with Kim Iverson is pretty good. Uh, I don't agree with a lot of their stuff, but a lot of their stuff I do agree with. I would say I agree with, uh, especially on domestic issues, quite a bit of what they say on, on the Hill rising on the Hill. I agree with that. Um, so yeah, um, there you go. Uh, there you go. All right. Um, uh, why did the 2010 crisis, uh, crisis break the Western left? Um, that's interesting. I, you know, um, the 2010s crisis break the Western left. What do you mean by the 2010s crisis? I will tell you this. The U.S. economy crashed in 2008 and 2009. Uh, we had an economic meltdown. And right after the economic meltdown, Michael Moore made a movie called Capitalism, A Love Story. And like one of my former roommates is in that movie. And like people I know were interviewed in that movie and, um, you know, um, there was, you know, this push, you know, I think it was, was it, um, Newsweek said we're all socialists now. And there, there was a section of the establishment, um, you know, like, you know, Warren Buffett gave that interview where it said, tax me more. He said, it's ridiculous that my secretary pays a lower, a higher tax rate than I do. There was a section of the elite of the United States that just turned to, you know, CPUSA, DSA, Workers World, you know, and said, go get them, Tiger. Go do your thing. You know, because they, they knew there was no danger of any of those groups taking power or like leading revolution. But they figured, hey, these groups can be the 
action in the street that can push back against the Tea Party and we can bring in some economic stabilization measures. We need to stabilize things in the economy to some degree or other. So, you know, we need Obama to push some Wall Street regulations. You know, we need, um, you know, we need some healthcare regulations. So why don't we have the left go out and do their thing and be the energy in the street uh, so that the Democrats can push some mild regulations to stabilize the country during the economic crisis. And I mean, it was really kind of sad. I mean, it was heartbreaking to watch. And I was there and as it was going on, I didn't realize how bad it was. Uh, But it was, yeah, there was a section of the establishment that basically said, because the communist groups are so weak and they're so pathetic, they're not going to threaten our power in any way. So there's just been an economic crisis. Wall Street got bailed out. The working class got sold out. Let them go do their thing. And they fell on their face and they couldn't do it. I mean, the communist groups were so weak. The Workers' World Party, the PSL, the, you know, the CPUSA, they couldn't do it. You know, I mean, there was a factory occupation in Chicago, the the Chicago uh, window and door makers, they occupied their factory. That was one good thing that happened. There was a, like a sit down strike. That was good. I'm glad it happened. Um, But it wasn't huge. I mean, I went to it. I was in college, me and my college Friends, we drove to the Republican windows and doors makers strike to support the striking workers who occupied their factory. But, you know, I mean, it wasn't a huge upsurge in the labor movement. I'll tell you that much. Uh, You know, there was, um, you know, there were some marches, bail out the people, not the banks, but didn't happen. And the ruling class, you know, the section of the ruling class that had kind of been giving the left, you know, a shove, kind of giving the left the oomph, like, can you go do it? They said, shit, we're going to have to do it ourselves. And Occupy Wall Street was very much, I mean, that was from the top. They, they said, okay, well, the left is so pathetic that, you know, we're going to have to do it ourselves. Um, it was kind of heartbreaking to watch, but it's these communist groups that have been just, you know, taking it in the mouth since, since the end of the Cold War and getting more and more irrelevant and getting more and more culty and weird and don't understand their own ideology. You know, I mean, they, they didn't know what they were doing. You know, and, you know, yeah, 2010 came along and there was an expectation that, you know, just like there'd been a protest movement against the Iraq war that had been led by communists, right? The Answer Coalition was led by, started by the Workers' World Party, uh, the United for Peace and Justice was CPUSA people like Judith LeBlanc and DSA people. Uh, And then there's Not in Our Name was the Revolutionary Communist Party. And they figured, okay, you know, we'll let, you know, you know, just like there was, there had to be a protest movement against the Iraq war. You know, there's been a financial crisis. We'll let them do it. And they couldn't do it. Um, and it, it wasn't that the ruling class was conspiring to stop them from doing it. The ruling class had determined that they were weak, you know, but it didn't realize how weak they were. I mean, it was really something like we've never seen, um, you know, and Occupy Wall Street and the synthetic left kind of emerged because the mainstream left was just so dysfunctional. It couldn't even do it when the ruling class wanted them to do it. Um, and it's kind of depressing to think about. Um but I mean, the need for out of the movement to the masses is more than ever, um, because um, at this point, you know, this the the remnants of the Marxist left that had been co-opted and manipulated, they're almost all gone. Um, and in their place has emerged this entity called the synthetic left that doesn't have any basic understanding of any of this stuff. It's not anti-imperialist. Um, it's just a big mess of identity politics and postmodernism and anti-communism and destructive vandal tendencies. Um, you know, you know, um, oh, 
I'll, I'll get around to that, Chris. I'm, I'm working on some different projects right now. And I thank you for, for reaching out, Chris. I, I will, I will definitely talk about this topic in the future. So there you go. Um, but, uh, there you go. Um, the situation in Sri Lanka, I've talked about it before, you know, people in the streets, food shortages, we'll see how this ends up. I mean, it could not, it, these, these situations don't end up good, right? If there's not, a, a socialist movement there. If there's not, you know, a, a core uh, that can bring about change, if it just becomes chaos in the streets, it can make things worse. Neil Frazier says that uh, she has a really big mouth. Suppose she's going to need that to, you know, well, you know, Nina Jankowitz. I mean, the problems with her are much beyond her face, but yeah, there you go. Um, can you tell us about Silicon Valley libertarian social Darwinists and their ideological underpinnings? I've run into a few of those guys. Well, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of that. Silicon Valley, you do get a lot of Austrian school, free market kind of guys. Uh, there was that guy at Google who got caught. And he was writing a, uh, he wrote a, an essay about how women and men are not equal and men are more intelligent than women. And, and they fired him from his job for that. And that was a big deal, uh, you know, and that, that, you know, alt-right-ish, I should say alt-right-ish thinking, not the actual alt-right, not white nationalism, but you know, Jordan Peterson-ish, you know, some some people are just better than others, you know, and uh, the government shouldn't intervene and if we, you, people should just work hard, you know, and, you know, Jordan Peterson-ish politics. That's pretty big on Silicon Valley, I would say. I would say the domineering voices on Silicon Valley, you know, the folks that are, are really in charge tend to have a social engineering policy, but the social Darwinist survival of the fittest, you know, you know, um, you know, the kind of the stereotype of the, the guy who's on the computer a lot, the autistic young guy who thinks that he's of the superior, he's a he's a, an Ayn Rand Ubermenschen, and that the only reason that he's not in charge of the world and making billions of dollars is because of all these normies, is it the inferior ones that are holding him back? You know, that, that stereotype of the very socially awkward, isolated computer nerd who considers themselves to be superior to everyone else and maybe has a lot of social anxiety. You know, there's, there's a lot of truth in that. Um, and the sad thing about that is that, that a lot of the things that those kind of people say, and they're into Ayn Rand and stuff like that, a lot of the things that those people point to is really true. Great example. I've told this story many, many times, but I'll tell it again. I got a C in French when I was in high school. I was a freshman in high school. I got a C in French when I got an A on all the tests. I got an A on all the tests and I actually could speak, you know, I, I mean, you know, for a freshman in high school taking French for the first time, I was doing okay. I, I aced all the tests and I did okay. Why did I get a C in French? The reason I got a C is because I believe it was, um, it was, uh, 75% of our grade was this folder that we had to keep that had all of our papers in it, all the worksheets we had done. And we had to have them in alphabetical order. And we had to, you know, have every single worksheet there and we had to not have any crinkles on the papers and all of that. And I lost a lot of my papers and the ones that I did have had crinkles on the, on the side of them. So I got a C, even though I got an A on all the tests and even though, you know, I was speaking French at roughly, roughly, you know, a higher level than most of the people in the class. Why was that? It's why would, why in the world, if you're teaching a class on French, do you end up having someone get a C because they didn't have all their papers in the right place and they didn't have their, and there's crinkles at the top of the papers that they do have. Uh, why, why, what does that have to do with speaking French? It doesn't have to do with speaking French. 
rich. It's got to do with rewarding quote unquote normies, right? For quote unquote normal people, it's much easier to keep your folder together than it is, you know, than it is to learn a language. And so in order to kind of give a boost to the people who might struggle with languages a little bit, um, you know, and in order to penalize, I mean, not intentionally, but to basically penalize people that might struggle with organization or keeping their papers or in order or whatever, uh, that's how the grading was done. And there were many examples of that through education in the United States where the, the system is kind of rigged to punish people who are actually interested in the topic, to punish people who actually have great passion, to punish people who um, who are intelligent, and to reward people that are just kind of conformists. Um, our educational system is very much set up that way, that it's to reward people who cannot think for themselves, who don't really care about things, uh, who don't you know research topics and know about them with any depth, um, and to punish people who are intelligent and who actually believe in stuff and who actually get things done and really want to learn. And that's really how our educational system is set up. And a lot of these guys on Silicon Valley that end up becoming libertarians are people that have been victimized by that. They've been victimized by that. Um, you know, and what they're being victimized by is very real. I tell people, you know, I, um, I worked in the UN press corps, uh, and I had an office in the UN and I sat next to guys from ABC and NBC and Fox and, you know, people had gone to Harvard and Yale and com competed to get the UN desk, a very, very hard to get job, the UN desk for mainstream media outlets. These are supposed to be the smartest people ever going to the elite schools with the highest grades. These people are dumb as shit. And I would talk to them about issues like Syria. I would talk to them about issues like Libya, Ukraine. They didn't know any of this stuff. They had never heard the alternative viewpoint on this stuff. I mean, you know, the other side of the story, you know, what, what Russia has to say about this, what China has to say about it, why anyone might support the Syrian government. They'd never heard any of this stuff. And these people are supposed to be so smart. But in their smartness, I realized that they weren't smart. They were just conformists. Uh, they were just, you know, people that were very, very good at being programmed. And so, you know, they were very easily programmed. And so they, they got good grades. Whereas somebody who says, but yeah, but why do people in Syria support Assad? Maybe there's two parts of the story. The teacher gives them an F. The teacher gives them an F because they dare question things, right? That's how our educational system is set up, right? It is set up to basically reward people that are very obedient and very easily programmed. And it's set up to basically punish people that are critical. Um, and that's absolutely true. All right. Do you, what, do you know about Curtis Yvan? No. Uh, he's a big among the techies, takes Gramsci's structural analysis, describe a cathedral, ideological control, but he doesn't attribute it to the existence of capital. I don't know anything about that, Clyde. I'm sorry I can't help you there. But it's late, folks, and and uh, I'm going to have to say goodnight for now. But we'll be doing this again in the next couple days, um, probably, definitely over the weekend, maybe even tomorrow. So um, thanks, everybody. Um, it was great to interview uh, David Fox at the beginning. It was great to, to chat with you all about Nina. And, uh, yeah, it's been fun, and I'll be back soon. Talk to you soon. In the struggle against U.S. imperialism, is now emerging throughout the world. Ever since World War II, U.S. imperialism and its followers have been continuously launching wars of aggression. But the people of various countries have been continuously waging revolutionary wars to defeat their aggression. And while the danger of a new world war still exists, 
and the people of all countries must get prepared. Revolution is the main trend in the world today. <laughs> 